Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Sir John Elliot Gardner is revered as one of the most innovative and dynamic musicians. His work as founder and artistic director of the Monteverdi Choir, English Baroque Soloists and Orchestre Révolutionnaire et Romantique has marked him out as a key figure, both in the early music revival and as a pioneer of historically informed performance. He's a regular guest of the world's leading symphony orchestras, such as the London Symphony Orchestra, Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra, and the Gewandhaus Orchestra in Leipzig. John Elliott has an extensive catalogue of award-winning recordings with his own ensembles and leading orchestras, including the Vienna Philharmonic. These include works by Mozart, Schumann, Berlioz, Elgar, and Kurt Weill, in addition to works by Renaissance and Baroque composers. His many recording accolades include two Grammy Awards, and he has received more gramophone awards than any other living artist. He was awarded a knighthood for his services to music in the 1998 Queen's Birthday Honours List. It is my utmost pleasure to welcome Sir John Elliot Gardner to the Classical Corner today. Hello, John Elliot, how are you? I'm very well, Davina. It's lovely to see you and to hear you. Lovely to see you too. Thank you so much for coming on the Classical Corner. You're very welcome. So the first question I think our listeners might be interested in is how your musical journey began and how you came to become such a lover and advocate of Baroque and Renaissance music. Yeah, well, it, it was... I was very fortunate in that um, my parents, who were, neither of whom were professional musicians, uh, were passionate music lovers and amateur singers. My mother, much better than my dad. My dad sang very loudly on his tractor, um, uh, lustily. <laughs> Um, but there was always music in the household. Uh, there, there was always music attached to the various festivals of the year, whether they, they be Christian, like Christmas and Easter on Whitson, or whether they be um, pagan, uh, like um, the Plough Monday celebrations, Lammas and, and um, the solstice, the winter solstice and the summer solstice. And that all was of a piece as far as I was concerned. And, struck me as being perfectly natural, but it was only when I went away to school I realised it was not, not at all what everybody else was brought up with. And so there was lots of music, um, chamber music, uh, a lot of polyphony, um, and it sort of um, it was chronological in the sense that uh, I suppose the first music I really knew and, and, and sang as a, as a kid was Palestrina and Bird, and then Monteverdi and Schutz and Bach, and up to sort of Mozart, and that was the end of things really um, much to the uh, chagrin of my great uncle who lived two miles away up on the hill Balfour a composer Balfour Gardner who thought that music only just sort of emerged from the dark ages with Beethoven and was dying in his time post Wagner so there was quite a sort of family split yes in repertoire but I suppose the thing that really uh, triggered everything for me was was the Branson summer school um, which was the predecessor to Dartington, mm-hmm. the Dartington Summer School, and that was founded just after the war by William Glock. 
And in the first season, he invited uh, Britain, Imogen Holst, who became a family friend, and Matthias Scheiber, Stravinsky, um, wow. the Amadeus Quartet, and Nadia Boulanger. Your teacher. Who became my teacher eventually. And um, that's where I first heard Monteverdi. It was a great moment when uh, the BBC Music Library uh, had just acquired the complete set of Mani Piero edition of, of Monteverdi's works. And I remember Glock and Imogen Holst handing out these, these precious volumes to people. And my revered teacher then steering an extremely ropey group of, of madrigalists in plimsolls and sensible um, clothes um, yes. through the glories of Monteverdi. And it left a mark with me, no doubt about it. Of course. And you therefore went on to really establish the Monteverdi Choir, I think almost by accident, about 60 years ago with a one-off performance of Monteverdi's Vespers when you were a student at Cambridge. How did that first project and performance come about and ultimately result in the, well, the three incredible award-winning ensembles that you have today? Well, it was a real test case for me, was uh, of, of whether I should actually become a professional musician or not. It was a, it was a, a, a real moment of epiphany because I'd gone to Cambridge on a history scholarship and I'd, I'd done my part one of the history tripos and uh, felt a bit of a fish out of water in Cambridge's very uh, in, ingrown toenail type of musical um, world, um, which was divided between beards and sandals doing Telemann recorder mm-hmm. works, which I found tedious beyond belief. Um, the King's singers, who were delightful, but sang in a very polite and homogenous way. And the, uh, friends from the National Youth Orchestra, who were much more kind of um, go ahead in terms of repertoire and contemporary music. But I didn't really fit in any of those worlds, and certainly I didn't fit in, in the music world at King's. But I had a wonderful director of studies uh, called Edmund Leach, who was a um, he became a provost of King's eventually. He was a uh, social anthropologist, and he said, now look, you've got to sort yourself out. What are you going to do? You're going to be an academic, you're going to be a historian, you're going to be an Arabist, because um, the whole history of, of, of the Middle East has played a big role in my upbringing too. Um, are you going to be a farmer? Are you going to be a forester? Are you going to be a musician? I said, well, I, I don't know. I pulled in about nine different directions. And he said, well, take a year off. I'll give you a year off and choose something that will really test you. So I, I chose the Monteverdi Vespers, which I'd heard um, in my teens on a BBC broadcast from, um, I think, York Minster, uh, with the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Walter Gerr. I mean, huge, big forces and yeah. so on. Huddersfield Choral Society, I think it was. Yes. And I thought, well, that's the piece I've got to do. And it was crazy, bit of foolhardy um, ambition and hubris probably but I was terrified and um, I went to see uh, Thurston Dart who was then professor of of music at Cambridge and he was very encouraging and said look make your own edition uh, find recruit the right instruments uh, find some cornets and sackbutts if you can form your choir and I'll come along to rehearsals and he did and I had the temerity to form a a choir out of the choral scholars of Kings and Trinity and, and uh, St. John's and so on, um, who found the music totally bewildering, was completely out of their ken. But they sort of, I think they loved it. I think they got to really love it because it's so different and it's so multicoloured. 
Of course. And even though the the, the performance was probably abysmal, it had a lot of um, a lot of potential, a lot of engagement by everybody, and it was. I was very lucky that George Malcolm, who was really a sort of hero of mine, uh, because he he was then director of Westminster Cathedral Music, and he managed to get a sound from his choir there which was so different from the Cambridge or the Oxbridge polite Mm. tradition of cat stroking polyphony Um, it was vibrant it was energized and it was it was multicolored and he came and he he said yeah that's it you've got to do it that's it Amazing. And obviously, when you started the Monteverdi Choir and English Baroque Soloists, I think you mentioned to me before that you started playing with steel strings and modern instruments. So how did you as an individual and as an ensemble become such an integral part of this historical performed informants movement, really, and ultimately pioneers in this musical interpretation? Ultimately pioneers. I think you're right. I wasn't the first, <laughs> by any manner of means. I was jolly come lately in many ways because... Well, I was in the sense that um, uh, I used cornets and sackbuts in that first performance in 1964. That was quite cutting edge. Mm-hmm. But then I was so downcast by the kind of the poor quality then of um, a very small coterie of brave but not particularly um, glittering uh, exponents of their instruments, and it, it was it was quite a, a sort of clique. And I just didn't feel, particularly in England, that we had the the, the talent at that point. I'm talking about the late 60s, early 70s. But then I became more and more entranced by the sounds that I heard coming from Holland and Belgium and and Vienna. I mean, particularly the Koiken brothers and and, and, um, Kuo, Leonhardt and so on. And I pushed things as hard as I could with the Montevideo Orchestra, which was a crack um, chamber orchestra on modern instruments. Um, and we were doing Bach, Handel, Ramo, and it was Ramo that was the real game changer because I realised that uh, you simply can't get this, the colour range on modern instruments. No. You just, you're you're, you're be- beating your head against a brick wall. And even though we were using a wonderful collection of um, tort, well, uh, dog bows actually belonging to the wonderful Emmanuel Hurwitz who kept them under his bed <laughs> and he uh, he would let me come and collect the bows and hand them out to the Montevideo Orchestra in rehearsal and then collect them take them back to his bed um, so in, in 1978 I, I took the plunge and dissolved much to the chagrin of the place the Montevideo Orchestra and formed the English Rock Solos instead and then therefore there was a sort of influx of these very opinionated as largely self-taught um, uh, string players and oboes players and, and, and so on who 
didn't know what the hell a conductor was doing in front of them. They weren't used to a conductor, and they certainly weren't used to a choir that was as good as a Monteverdi choir. And there was a quite a iffy atmosphere, and the choir thought that I was completely potty to have, to have done this thing and say, what are you doing? These ghastly squawks and bulges and everything else. <laughs> and they lamented the demise of the Monteverdi Orchestra. But you learn as you earn. And it was at a time when the record companies were really interested to, to and saw the commercial advantage of of uh, reappraising the whole Baroque repertoire on period instruments. And I had three different record companies, Irato, Decca, oh, four actually, um, Dodge Gramophone and Philips, all wanting recordings. And you learnt in a studio as well as in the live performances. And the rest is history. <laughs> Quite. So focusing on the Monteverdi choir for the moment, um, the blend of voices in the choir is obviously extremely important uh, to keep the right balance in the timbre that the Monteverdi choir is really well known for, certainly in Renaissance and Baroque music. What are the factors that you consider when you're pairing specific voices and incorporating new members into the group to retain this sort of signature sound? Horses for courses. You need to have the right balance and the right mixture um, the recipe um, to adjust to the repertoire that you're doing and it used to be uh, an amateur choir with some um, leading professionals or would be professionals like the King Singers and then from 1982 when we went to Aix-en-Provence and we were there for a whole month um, it had to become fully professional even though the amateurs were such a key element to the to the ethos of the choir and challenged the professionals in terms of their technique and in terms of their commitment and everything else. And I've been extremely lucky in that uh, I've always chosen voices that have the potential for solo singing um, and given as many as I can the opportunity to step out and, and do solos. But at the same time, to, to, to train them to, or to encourage them to... Uh, be humble in in the way that they um, they they mix their voices with their neighbours and so on, so they're acutely aware of it. An example of, of of how it can work is is in the Bach and Alta Pilgrimage in two thousand, when the solos, a lot of whom were uh, professional solos and came from outside, um, were very happy nonetheless to join in the in with the small choir and to sing the opening choruses and the and the chorales. So it's all cut from the same cloth, ultimately. Yes, absolutely. You just mentioned that you cover a really wide range of repertoire with us as ensembles, ranging obviously from Renaissance polyphony, Monteverdi, through to Beethoven, Berlioz, Sondheim. In terms of conducting and directing, would you say you feel more enthused by the more intimate Baroque repertoire or large-scale orchestral works? Both are obviously amazing in their own ways, but what really floats your boat? Oh gosh! I mean, I'm so grateful for the for the lot because they they have different allure, different attractions. I mean, doing it West Side Story last year at the Edinburgh Festival was a, just a huge thrill. It was a piece that I'd grown up with. I'd, I'd, I'd went to the first performances that was done in the Haymarket Theatre when it came over in 1958 or something like that, and and, and adored it and always wanted to conduct it and. I was very lucky to have these amazing jazz musicians who play for John Wilson in his orchestra and, yeah. and who are incredibly um, uh, receptive and, and, and inspir- inspiring, actually, inspirational. 
and the Scottish, uh, Scottish Chamber Orchestra played extremely well. I mean, that's one extreme. Uh, I mean, uh, in the pieces that you've done with us in the ORI, I mean, I love doing the big Berlioz works because they are of so exhilarating to, to put together and to play and, and, and the raw romanticism and the raw passion of those works are fantastic. And on the other hand, you know, to do a miniature piece by Johann Christoph Bach or, or a, a piece of Purcell, a piece of Monteverdi has equal thrills, just different. It's the diversity that, that gives one uh, the, the vitality and, and the enjoyment. Of course. You must have done so many incredible concerts over the years, uh, all over the world, both with us as ensembles and, and the guest orchestras that you conduct. I know for me the success of a concert is all down to uh, the location, the hall, how tired you are, the audience, how long the tour's been, um, and how the audience responds, of course. But which are the few that have jumped out at you for being special in some way? I'm still living off the memory of, of those three Beethoven symphony cycles we did at the beginning of the year because yeah. there was such an, a feeling of commitment and I mean none of us of course knew that that was going to be the end of a chapter and it would be this this no. this extraordinary period of lockdown following it but um, I think you could probably vouch for it that there was in the rehearsals and in the cumul- accumulative energy of the three cycles uh, not only a fantastic sense of of um, everybody giving that last dollop of energy, but also admiring each other, not in, a, not in a gratuitous way, but just there was such virtuosity coming from the wind players and from the brass and from the strings. I mean, just for instance, the first fiddle section in the slow movement of the Ninth Symphony, and I, I just basked in that when I listened. And you probably heard the... I know. Or watched the, the, the performance, did you, from Barcelona? I mean... Yes. It wasn't particularly well mic'd up, but you could hear that the unanimity of the phrasing, and, and it was like um, it was like a sort of choreographed... Uh, it was a balletic movement, and that was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. Absolutely. It was, I mean, to be a part of that, being in that section and being such an integral part, everybody is, you can't slack in any shape or form um everybody has to be exactly on the money to make that sound and it just it was just this soaring feeling like we were being carried um by a bird or something and when i watched it at the barcelona broadcast uh yes. back, I, it really did move me to tears i just it brought back all the feelings that i really experienced on stage and i think for us also as an mm. orchestra the it was a very intense and exciting exhilarating period the whole few months because obviously we had a lot of music to cover in rehearsals you know every day different symphony it was a a lot of digesting to do overnight going home and really you know going through those thoughts and then of course you know in barcelona really having you know reaching the final peak on the last day with the ninth, when we'd done every other symphony at the beginning of the week, we thought, how the hell are we going to do this? You know, it's an up, you know, we had problems with, you know, people not being comfortable on stage or, you know, there were lots of little teething problems and to make it through these and for everyone to be so comfortable and happy and trusting trusting, and there was just the most amazing camaraderie and I felt, you know, when we played those last calls of the ninth symphony, it just... we came off so many people were in tears it was just uh, the most incredible feeling of accomplishment and the fact that we are 
especially in, in the ORR, such a family and that we all got through it together. And then, of course, that took us on to, you know, New York, amazing in Carnegie Hall. And then also Chicago, which was in also incredibly in the bunker, which was also incredibly moving in its own way, because, of course, the lovely sponsor who had organised and paid for the concert was taken very ill to her bed. And we actually live streamed the whole series of concerts to her. And unfortunately, she died before the last one, which was devastating. But we then played that in her memory and the whole thing was just so poignant. Um, just really unforgettable experience. And, and that brings me on to his seventh symphony, which is one of your favourites out of the nine, which you mentioned. And why would you say this one? Oh, well, just because it's implacable. It's implacably energetic, implacably uh, vital, implacably inventive. Um, and uh, all th- well, the three movements, the quick movements, first the scherzo and the last movement, and then that heavenly, I was going to say slow movement, it's not really a slow movement, it's an andante, but it's, it's this sort of pilgrim's march going through, through, through nature, which I find s- so touching. And it was, uh, it was, it was encored several times in, uh, in Beethoven's lifetime, and you can see why. Mm. No, it's, it's just heavenly. Absolutely. Which movement have you chosen? Well, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still umming and ahhing, actually. The, the symphony as a whole I adore because it's all centred around dance and dynamic. Yeah. You've got the peasant's dance. You've got a beautiful, elegant minuet and trio. Then you've got this lively romp at the end, and it's just all get up and go. But the, yeah. the, the second movement is so ritualistic in... Um, in, in in a way, and I um, remember you saying in, in our rehearsals that Bate, it was written at a time where they were honouring the dead that had come back from the war. It was played at That's a concert, um, and the dead uh, the soldiers. The come. Austrian soldiers who died in the, exactly. in the war against Napoleon. But then there's also an element of obviously Berlioz using that and basing his Harold in Italy uh, pilgrims march on that as well exactly. so it's it all ties in so beautifully and obviously the link that we have between Beethoven and Berlioz which we're always talking about in in the ORR um but I think for the for the time being I feel like the fourth movement just for its get up and go yeah. I think we just we need a bit of that at the moment we do we're, we're, we do we, we need that so you can hear the fourth movement from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony from our live performance from Carnegie Hall in the Spotify playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. John Elliott, something which was a complete revelation to me was being part of our Monteverdi trilogy operas, which we performed several years ago um, all around Europe. We had Lucerne, Venice, uh, Chicago, New York. It was, it was amazing. And I had actually never played any Monteverdi before that it was very unique and especially I think performing the operas as a trio so you had the same audience every single night and they were experiencing new love stories new plots new music but the same cast every single night incredible cast of soloists that that you'd found from all around the world who were so versatile and able to encompass these these incredible roles and this brings me of course onto your wonderful podcast which is about Monteverdi. For those of you who don't know, John Elliott has launched a fascinating podcast on Apple and Spotify called Monteverdi and His Constellation, which I'd love to touch on. The idea's probably been bubbling away, I should think, since we did this this trilogy. I remember you talking about way it. Way before, way before. Way before. Pro- probably since I edited the Monteverdi Vespers back in 1964. <laughs> Long time coming. 
Well, I've listened to several episodes and found it completely fascinating and, and urge you to all do the same. Um, it's not just about music, but about art, history, architecture, philosophy, religion. Perhaps you can expand on this a little bit just so that our listeners know, if they haven't listened to it yet, uh, what they can expect. Well, it's a cross-section of Europe at the beginning of the 17th century and its cultural history because... Uh, very often in histories of the 17th century, um, which nearly always t- take second place to uh, histories of the Enlightenment of the 18th century, which um, I deplore because the 17th century is every bit, if not more, interesting. Um, but historians f- don't include music. Uh, and it's inexplicable to me, um, unless it, because they feel not qualified to talk about music or unless they think music isn't important. But music is incredibly important at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, not just because of Monteverdi, not just because it's the beginnings of opera as we know it, but because it's a lingua franca, it's it's a sort of common denominator that links scientists like Galileo, who was the son of a musician and was a competent lutenist and even a composer himself, Kepler, who wrote his main treatise all about the harmony of the spheres, Uh, Francis Bacon, who wrote about music, and then the two painters, um, uh, Caravaggio and Rubens, for whom music also was very important. Caravaggio's early paintings, a lot of them are of musicians, of naked boys in rather lascivious poses, um, um, plucking a lute. Uh, And um, Rubens, uh, very much um, influenced, I think, by the the whole zeitgeist, and particularly the poet um, Marino, who was um, a, a key figure of, in Monteverdi's lifetime. Um, and Shakespeare, uh, and music in Shakespeare is really important. So this generation, there's seven of them that I've chosen, um, were all born within 10 years of each other. Uh, Shakespeare, Galileo, Kepler, Bacon, Caravaggio, Rubens and Monteverdi. And Monteverdi is a sort of missing one. People know about the others, but they, a lot, unless they happen to be music lovers, they would have been intimidated or just simply not cognizant of his importance and how he is the sort of pivotal point between Renaissance polyphony and the beginnings of tonality and, and the beginnings of, of all the, the, the music that has, that has enriched our lives uh, ever since. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a historical survey and I was uh, lucky to be able to interview uh, and to talk to experts in all these different specialist fields and uh, it, and also to use music examples, which uh, I think puts puts Monteverdi and his uh, originality and his modernity right in the foreground. Something that you said, which really resonated with me, was that as things evolved, music, poetry, and rhetoric were now mistresses to the harmony rather than the servant. Now Monteverdi followed Plato in his views that melody and rhythm followed the text. So text was suddenly an incredibly emotive tool, a connection to human emotions, making music real. So then instead of the text just telling the story, the performers are now enacting their characters, making emotions real through the text. This is very evident throughout the whole of his opera, Il Ritorno d'Ulisse in Patria, which we performed and recorded as part of the trilogy. Well, Monteverdi was perhaps being a bit naughty here because the Council of Trent 
um, took a dim view of the fact that all these religious texts were set with amazing skill by composers from from Shoska through to Palestrina. Um, you couldn't really hear the text because there was so so much polyphony, dense counterpoint going on that that uh, the, the text just got obliterated into a sort of wash of sound. And the, the Council of Trent was very fun. From now on, church music had to be very clear with the text. Uh, and Monteverdi absolutely bought into that, but not just for church music, but also for secular music. And he wasn't the only one, but he did it in, a, he did it in such a convincing and, and persuasive way. And the, to me, he, he's, he's very Shakespearean in the sense that even if the language is remote to us because it's 400 years old, it's the sound of the music feels very, very of now, of our time. And it just leaps over the, 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 the missing centuries, the intervening time, I, 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 in, in a way that you, it, there's a lot of music that came after Monteverdi that feels a little bit antique and remote from our time. But Absolutely. His music has a, a, a sort of laser-like uh, directness and energy. And as you say, rightly say, there's humanity, there's business that the whole of human emotion, the whole gamut of, of human feelings, um, which has been conveyed in literature by Shakespeare and, and is being more and more um, emulated in painting by, by Caravaggio and Rubens, has been left out in music and he is bringing it into the foreground and that's what makes it so uh, distinguished and so special. Exactly. And I think this is really evident in, in his operas and also uh, in Ulysse. And I know that uh, one of your favourite moments is uh, the final scene where Ulysses and Penelope are reunited, having been apart for years and years. Well, at least three hours. <laughs> Definitely, which is quite a very long time in terms of opera. And it's a very odd coming together because she doesn't trust him. She thinks he's a magician. Who are you? You've been away for so long. And then that moment where she finally recognises him. It's just so touching and text plays such an important part in that. Well, she is not allowed to sing an aria until that point. Monteverdi keeps her in restative. No. Um, the beginning of the opera, she sings what sort of seems like an, opera, uh, an, an aria, but it's not really. And that's in contrast to all the other characters who go in this wonderful fluid way that Monteverdi constructs between... Uh, restative, which is really kind of speech with musical notes, um, into something more melodic and more kind of catchy in terms of tunes, and there are lots of catchy tunes in, in, in Monteverdi's last two operas. And then, right at the end, when it's her nurse um, who says, yes, I recognise him, I've seen him in his bath, and he's got a mole here, he's got a scar there on his kneecap, uh, yes, yes. And, and he says, yes, and, you know, all the time I was away, a very, very male thing to say, he said, you know, there I was thinking of your bedspread, and I remember what you, how you embroidered your bedspread. And so, anyway, she finally succumbs after all this time. <clears throat> and yeah. he, he says, surely, surely, la lingua, loose your tongue, loose your tongue, now let it, let it all out. And from that moment, and especially the way that Fulio Zanassi sings it, I'm just a puddle, I'm just a wash, because I just find it so touching. And uh, the way they come together, first of all, she sings this aria with violin obligati, and then they sing this final duet, which in its way is every bit as touching as, as the Popea Nero one at the end of Incoronazione di Popea. So it's a masterstroke. It absolutely is. This is an extract of our recording from the final scene of Il Ritorno d'Ulisse in Patria. 
Tu es sous 
I know having played with you for, gosh, about eight years now, um, I can't believe it's that long, how important text is, uh, touching back on that, in not only delivering the story, but in terms of the pairing of the diction with the choir and the bow stroke in the orchestra and the breath that, that the wind players use and such a symbiotic relationship between the two, it's very important to you. And somewhere this is so evident, of course, is in Bach, which we do a lot of with the English Baroque soloists, which brings me on to your incredible Bach cantata pilgrimage tour, which you did in 2000, which is absolutely an amazing thing to have accomplished for, I think, 13 European cities and New York. Um, you must have had so many incredible highlights and wonderful memories from that. Uh, it was a unique uh, occurrence. It was to mark the, the new millennium, but also to uncover this extraordinary treasury of music of Bach's, which just gets buried and is not performed very often. Um, you know, everybody knows all, all the, the, the major pieces, the Passions, the Christmas Oratory, the B minor Mass, and the Brandenburgs, and all that, the Concerti, but the Cantatas get short shrift. And actually, before 2000, I'd only conducted about 15 or 16 of them, I think. I knew about 30, but I had to study 199. And we were doing, it came thick and fast because we started on Christmas Eve at 1999 uh, and we finished on New Year's Day uh, 2001. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. Uh, and uh, there were 89 concerts and 199 cantatas to get through. My gosh. And it was conceived uh, in kind of concentric circles, starting really where Bach was born in Thuringia and then get widening out through into Saxony and then taking in a larger and larger circle through, through Germany and then into the Netherlands and then into Scandinavia and then south into France and Italy and to Spain and so on and to, to England and Scotland uh, and Wales. And um, we ended, as you say, um, in, in New York and St. Bartholomew's in Park Avenue. There were so many standout moments, but there's one particular uh, cantata. It's cantata 77, BWB 77. Um, and it's, it's just extraordinary because it's... Yes. It's a combination of, of the text, the commandments uh, from the Old Testament, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, uh, and uh, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself from the New Testament. And the way that he layers... and. Um, the way he distinguishes the, the mood of one text, the, the, the much more human New Testament and the much more hieratic and, and uh, 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 tub-thumping effect of the, of the Old Testament um, cantata uh, text is, it commandment is just prodigious. The opening chorus of that is quite extraordinary. The way that um, uh, the con con dense counterpoint of the three lower voices and then the way that the cantus firmus, the melody, comes in in the sopranos and uh, the way that he opens mm -hmm. up the whole spectrum of sounds with the whole ensemble yeah. playing and then narrows it right down to a tiny little sort of trio sonata texture. That is overwhelming. Um, the other thing that's overwhelming is the uh, 
the aria uh, with uh, the trumpet obbligato, when he's talking about unvollkommenheit, which is imperfection. He's talking about human imperfection as opposed to God's perfection. Yes. And here he does something absolutely daring. He gets a, um, a trumpet um, with its limited uh, range of possible notes, uh, even the corno and da tirarsi, or tromba da tirarsi, which has a slide. And he, he puts it through its paces so that it actually can't really get the notes without a huge amount of kind of um, jiu-jitsu and, and lip um, uh, movement uh, to, to try and negotiate around these. And you feel, listening to this music, you can feel the torture of the trumpet player trying to get around. And that, that's em emblematic. It's central to Bach's purpose, which is to show, look, we're all imperfect. We're, we're struggling. We're doing yeah. our best. And then those passages where he just uses the the, the, the open tones of the, the trumpet and it's like a stratosphere coming out of the clouds and, and hovering above the earth. I mean, that is just prodigious. And it, this cantata sort of has resonance to me with, uh, oh, I don't know, with Brahms's um, German Requiem and with the Messiaen uh, Quartet for the End of Time. It's, that, it's got that type of originality and that type of topicality, if you like. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you're... Uh, I don't think it fundamentally it doesn't matter if you're a believer, a Christian or not. Uh, and I'm certainly a, 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 not a, a standard believer at all, but I do be become a believer whenever I perform Bach because it's irresistible. You, Absolutely. You realise quite how theology is a, a thicket that has to be got through or to be not to be brushed aside, but has to be penetrated. And Bach can penetrate the theological um, messages better than anybody. And even if you object to the theology and you, you, you think that can't be right, that can't be right, that can't be right, he convinces you through his, purely by his musical genius that it has a validity, it has a, 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 an enduring quality. That's so important. Absolutely. It's so important. Well, this is a recording of the English Baroque soloist and Monteverdi choir performing the opening chorus of Bach's cantata BWV 77.
you're actually the one who got me rather hooked on playing obligato arias when we went to New York in 2013 to launch your book Music in the Castle of Heaven which is your wonderful book uh, on Bach and his life uh, which we launched along with your BBC documentary talking of books do you have a new book coming out anytime soon are you working on anything else under the radar well it's not coming out soon but um there are a couple of projects but uh, the one that i'm working on at the moment is has grown out of the podcast series monteverdi and his constellation right uh, and i'm i'm working all the hours that god gave me at the moment to to, <laughs> to try and do that before the chance of making live music again when i'm going to leap at that of course but in in the meantime um I'm I'm working very much on on that book, um, and it's a huge, hugely stimulating exercise. Um, scary, terrifying, challenging, but I hope rewarding. I'm sure it will be, and um, very much look forward to reading that when it comes out. You have an extensive catalogue of recordings with the Monteverdi Choir and orchestras and with other ensembles too, with which you've won Grammy Awards and I think you've actually won the largest number of gramophone awards as any living human being, which is rather incredible. I wanted to touch on a beautiful recording of yours, which is your arrangement of Brahms's Geislich Lieder, which I know is particularly close to your heart. I was listening to it today and it is just one of the most beautiful pieces I think I've ever heard. It's very touching, isn't it? I mean, Brahms... I completely underrated when I was a teenager and, and, and uh, even in my early 20s, I just found him very um, uh, sort of mahogany and thick and turgid. How wrong, how wrong. Um, his music is unbelievably uh, full of rhythmic vitality and um, elan. And uh, he's also capable of the most um, mystical moods in his music and this Geisliches Lied is, is a piece of mysticism which I find deeply consoling and it, he wrote it for choir and organ and I just arranged it for strings and I'm not particularly fond of the organ and I'm very fond of you know string orchestras so it was an easy <laughs> easy transition to make. Well it's absolutely stunning. So here is an extract of John Eliot's arrangement of Brahms's Geisliches Lied performed beautifully by the ORR.
So John Elliott, let's just wrap up with one more thing. I'd love to just touch on Hector Berlioz, another one of our loves. We obviously play a lot of Berlioz with ORR, um, Symphony Fantastique, Harold in Italy, Le Nuit d'Ete. Um, and another one of his works, which I know we both love, is his overture to Le Corsaire, which we performed a few years ago in Europe and America. Um, what a vibrant, incredible piece. Uh, we used to walk on stage and that was go, wasn't it? We were standing up and we hopefully had the audience on the edge of their seats, fly by the seats of their pants. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's implacable, isn't it? I mean, it just goes it's like a bomb out of hell. It's just extraordinary. Berlioz is, is, is a great love of mine. <clears throat> I just find everything comes together in him. I love his subversiveness. I love his originality. I love the fact that he is as much a literary figure as a musical figure. I mean, if, if he hadn't written a note of music, just his letters and his memoirs and his book, A Travers Chant, would qualify for him as, a, a, as a, a, a major romantic literary figure. And, you know, unlike Bach, which I've written about, unlike Monteverdi, which I'm writing about, you've got so many letters and so many documents which enrich one's understanding of his life, of his love life, of his um, frustrations, of his political views, of his philosophical views, of his absolutely uh, um, unqualified ad adoration of Shakespeare and of Homer and of Virgil um, and Goethe, and the way that, in a way, he takes on from Monteverdi, that might surprise you or might surprise some people, where Monteverdi uh, is the first composer of real note to articulate human emotion through voices. Berlioz does it through an orchestra, through his instruments, and with voices as well, but he makes the orchestra speak. And that's the thing that I'm always on about with the ORR and the, and the orchestra responds so beautifully to it, is that they they're not just playing amorphous melodies or amorphous lines of music, but they are actually giving diction and giving a, um, a verbal import to each phrase so that it carries with it beauty of sound, energy and emotion, very strong emotion, but also this sense of communicative energy from him through us to the audience. Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head there. Well, you can catch our recording of Berlioz's Overture to Le Corsaire, as well as all of the music which John Elliott and I have talked about in the Spotify playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. John Elliott, it's been an absolute joy to welcome you here today. Thank you so much for sharing your wonderful knowledge and giving us a glimpse into your life. You're very welcome, Davina. Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye.